0: everyone good morning (laughs) if you would all uh, mind making your way to your seats go ahead and get started in a little bit I hope you had a a wonderful Thanksgiving Um, uh, it was a a great weekend for our family uh, as we remembered everything God has done for us and we will do that again this morning but uh, we, we are in the third week of Isaiah third of five weeks this morning And uh, we'll be talking about the subject of judgment this morning, so not a typical Thanksgiving Sunday school, but uh, I hope that it does produce thanksgiving in your heart as we read through this section of Isaiah. So would you you pray with me while we begin? Father, we are so thankful uh, to be in your church this morning, so thankful to sit under your word, to hear this word that you have for us. And Father, you have called us out of darkness into light, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And Father, this causes our hearts to soar in thankfulness, even as we read about the um, fate that would have awaited us had you not opened our eyes and saved us through Christ. So, Father, uh, would you uh, help us this morning as we try to study your word from Isaiah. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, um, if you uh, would look at your handout, we're going to start just by reviewing where we're at. Uh, Wendell, if you wouldn't mind turning me down a little bit, I'm not sure where Wendell is. That's all right. Oh, there he is. Thank you, Wendell. Um, we're going to start out by reviewing just the outline of Isaiah. Do You see you've got this table at the top of your outline, and I think it's extremely helpful, so I'm just going to keep it up there every week as we go through uh, the lesson just as a reminder for those of you who haven't been with us, Isaiah, it, you can break it up into two major chunks. The first 39 chapters are primarily chapters of judgment. The last 27 are primarily chapters of salvation. So if you hear people talk about Isaiah, it's typically referred to as judgment and salvation or judgment and consolation. Those are the two breaks in the book, with chapter 40 being the 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 start of the new section. Also, the first 39 chapters are about the Assyrian period, and the last 27 are about the Babylonian period. So if you remember, again, this is going back to our Bible history, the uh, nation of Assyria came and captured the northern kingdom, which was Israel, right, in 722 B.C., And then later, the kingdom of Babylon came and took the southern kingdom into exile in 586. Now, do you remember when Isaiah began his ministry? What year did he begin? What was that? That's right. The year King Uzziah died was what year? (laughs) 740. 740. So that's important. Isaiah's ministry lasted about 50 years so he began his ministry in the, in the year that King Uzziah died, which means he taught, he uh, prophesied for about, uh, what is that, 30 years, and then the northern kingdom was taken away. Okay. Now, the audience of this book is Judah, though. So essentially, the whole, the whole message of Isaiah can be summed up in this way. Judgment is coming, repent, and God will save you. Okay. Judgment is coming, repent, and God will save you. So that is the outline, the structure that we're going to be looking at. Last time we talked about the Holy One of Israel from Isaiah chapter 6. So before we go any further, I had a conversation with a brother about the chapter divisions in Isaiah. And I wanted to bring it up because I don't want to mislead any of you. I brought up the, um, the point that there are 66 books in the Bible and there are 66 chapters in Isaiah and that the first thirty nine chapters are uh, the first half of the book, and there 's thirty nine chapters in the Old Testament, I just want to just want to reiterate in case there 's any confusion, these chapter divisions were not in the original text. Did you know that? okay, good, most of you are shaking your head, yes, so these were added later. These were not inspired. If you look at the manuscript of uh, of these Hebrew manuscripts we have they don 't have you know 16, 17, 18, right? So these were added later. But that isn't to say that there weren't breaks that Isaiah intended as he was writing uh, his prophecy. So if you look, I'm just going to point out one. If you go to Isaiah chapter 1, Isaiah chapter 1, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but do you see the very first verse says, the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amaz, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, okay? And then he begins a a prophecy of judgment against Judah. And then look at chapter 2, verse 1 of chapter 2. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amoz, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. So in the text itself, he repeats himself, indicating that, okay, this is now a new chapter, in essence, a new thing that I'm saying, so, uh, I just wanted to say that it's not as though there was one long text, and then later in the 1200s, someone came and said, okay, well, let's just make this chapter two, and let's make this chapter three. There's actual markers in the text itself indicating this is a new idea or a new break, uh, but we shouldn't read too much into these chapter divisions, Right? This is not, I have in your notes here, the Qumran caves versus secret codes. There's not a Bible code that we're trying to uncover, right? There's no hidden message that we're trying, that God did not intend us to find, that we are searching for some deeper meaning. I think your blank there is the Great Isaiah Scroll. That's that blank, the Great Isaiah Scroll. I I think I've already spent too much time on this, but I'll just mention that... uh, when the Dead Sea Scrolls were found in 1947, they found a nearly complete manuscript of Isaiah, and it is remarkable. If you go to that link there, you can see a high-resolution image of this great scroll of Isaiah. Um, I think that's all I'm going to say about that. So let's begin. We're going to be talking about judgment today. I want to start by giving you a big-picture reminder of judgment in the book of Isaiah, So we can see the whole forest of judgment that we'll be looking at from the book. And then we'll zoom in and look at, go verse by verse through two representative chapters. Chapter 22 and 24. So I hope you brought your Bibles today. We're going to be flipping through it and examining how Isaiah and God, through Isaiah, has laid out judgment. If you would, look at chapter 1, as I already mentioned... And you see this little diagram that I've made for you, these three concentric circles? There is a uh, plan, an intentional way that Isaiah has laid out judgment in these first half of the book. He begins with Judah, very specifically talking just to Judah and Jerusalem, primarily in chapters 1 through 5. There is not a lot of good news in chapters 1 through 5. It is primarily judgment, exclusively judgment Uh, except for a little bit, uh, towards Judah and Jerusalem uh, primarily. So then the question is, and and, and you can just look and see, chapter 1, verse 9. Look at chapter 1, verse 9. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Verse 10. This is Isaiah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give teach, give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. These are strong words. Isaiah is calling Jerusalem. He's calling them Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, and this is just a taste of the strong words that Isaiah has for uh, the people of God. So the question is, if, if judgment is coming to Jerusalem and Judah... Uh, what about the rest of the world? Will anyone else be judged, or is it only Judah and Jerusalem? If if they are the people of God and they themselves will experience judgment, what will happen to the rest of the world? So Isaiah continues. If you move on through the book, you see that uh, the answer to that question is no. Actually, other nations will also be judged, and one representative chapter is chapter ten where Isaiah explains that Assyria, this nation that's coming, is nothing but a, uh, an instrument in the hands of God that God will be judging the nation of Judah and Jerusalem with. But they themselves will not be innocent. Um, and if you look at verse... Um, I'm sorry, I thought I had it right there. Me just a second i guess i deleted it um okay there it is verse 12 Do you see there in verse 12 when the lord has finished all his work on mount zion and jerusalem he will punish the speech of the arrogant king of assyria and the boastful look in his eyes so no judgment isn't just limited to judah and jerusalem But in fact, other nations will be judged as well. And if you continue out the concentric circles, we see that this message of judgment is really for the entire world. So flip with me, if you will, to chapter 13, and I want you to see now, Just we're just going to be flipping through these chapters, I want you to see uh, nation after nation after nation, God is pronouncing judgment on these individual nations. Chapter 13, do you see the title there? It says The Judgment of Babylon. If you flip to 14, it continues with an oracle concerning Assyria, an oracle concerning Philistia. Chapter 15, an oracle concerning Moab. Chapter 17, an oracle concerning Damascus. So just keep flipping and it keeps going. 18 is Cush, 19 is Egypt, 20 is Egypt and Cush, 21, he goes back to Babylon. 22 is Jerusalem, again. 23 is Tyre and Sidon. And then finally, if you go to 24, judgment on the whole earth. I just want you to see here, there is a systematic method that, that Isaiah is focusing. He begins by starting with Judah and Jerusalem, and then it grows outward. And really, the whole earth comes under God's condemnation and judgment. So I want to ask you a question. As you're looking through all of these chapters here, does anything strike you about these nations that he has listed here in these ten chapters or so? Enemies of Israel? With a couple exceptions, right? Um, But yeah, so they're, they're enemies. What else do you note here? These are... These are just, in general, nations around Israel and Jerusalem. What's, what's that? Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. So if you, look at, if you look at where these nations were located, they were essentially surrounding Israel and Jerusalem. So it's as though God is saying all of these nations surrounding you to the north, south, east, and west, they will all be judged. But the reason, Russ, I said that they are uh, mostly enemies of Israel is because Israel and Jerusalem are actually included in these chapters, right? It's not just Gentile nations, but Jerusalem is chapter 22. And then right after that is chapter 23, which is another Gentile nation. So why? do you have any thoughts on why Jerusalem is included in this list of nations. That's right. They had, they had degraded such to the point that they were essentially just like all of the Gentile nations surrounding them. They had strayed so far from God that they were under God's condemnation and they were essentially no different than all of the Gentile nations surrounding them. So, that's the structure. I want you to see, I have that little table there. Uh, All of these nations, God has pronounced judgment, and there are historical fulfillments of these judgments, right? So, Judah, we know, fell in 586 to Babylon, and we'll read about that in chapter 22. The nations, the fall of Assyria was in 605, it was conquered by Babylon, but Babylon itself fell in 539. So, These judgments, there's a little difficulty as we read Isaiah trying to figure out, is he talking about some near-term judgment, or is he talking about some end-time judgment? Well, in reality, both are happening here in Isaiah. There are direct prophecies of near-term falls of nations, and there are also long-term, the day of the Lord, which hasn't happened yet. And we'll actually look at both of those today. And you see that—that's what is coming, the day of the Lord, which is to be determined. <laughs> Unless any of you know what day that's happening, <laughs> if you did, I wouldn't believe you. <laughs> okay. Well, with all that, let's let's look at the at the trees now. Can you go to chapter twenty-two? Chapter twenty-two. This is <clears throat> the oracle concerning Jerusalem. This is. The judgment on Jerusalem, which is in the midst of all of these other nations, this is specifically aimed towards Jerusalem, and this is specifically talking about the fall of Jerusalem, which would come in five eighty six by Babylon. Okay, this is not. Um, there's there's debate about this, but uh, and you can read about it. But this is this is talking about the fall of Jerusalem. I think you'll see that as we go through it. What I plan to do is just read through this and and just point out some observations as we read the text, and then we'll go to chapter 24 and see more judgment from Isaiah. So, if you will, chapter 22. The oracle concerning the valley of vision. What do you mean that you have gone up, all of you, to the housetops? You who are full of shoutings, tumultuous city, exultant town... Let me pause there. This is Isaiah's shock at Jerusalem's foolish fun. Okay, Uh, he begins the oracle concerning the Valley of Vision. We'll see later. This Valley of Vision is really a scoffing. He is scoffing at them. Uh, Jerusalem is supposed to. It's on a hill, but he's calling them a valley. Okay, he calls them the Valley of Vision, but we'll see soon that they are blind. And instead of being concerned or acknowledging the judgment that's coming, they have gone up to their housetops in revelry, they are full of shoutings, and they're having a party essentially. But, but Isaiah is shocked. He says, what do you mean? What, what are you doing? Why are you, why are you doing this? Because he sees something that Israel, or sorry, that Judah does not see, which is coming. And we'll read it. It's picking up again in verse two. Your slain are not slain with the sword or dead in battle. All of your leaders have fled together. Without the bow, they are captured. All of you who were found were captured, though they had fled far away. This is the end of Jerusalem here. What, what Isaiah is using is a prophetic, perfect tense. He's, these are in past tense as we're reading it. Your slain are not slain. Your leaders have fled. This has not happened yet when Isaiah wrote these words, but they are, it is so sure to happen that Isaiah is speaking in the past tense. And if you know the fall of Jerusalem, you know this is exactly how Jerusalem fell. When uh, Jeremy took us through the book of Lamentations... Okay, there's a part in Lamentations 4 where it says, happy are those who were killed with the sword. If you remember how Jerusalem fell, the nations came and laid siege to Jerusalem. Babylon came for a year and a half. And uh, the worst suffering was not caused by actual fighting. It was caused by um, starvation. That's what he means when Isaiah says, you're slain. They're not going to be slain with the sword. They're not going to die in a battle They're going to die from a siege, a a year-and-a-half-long siege that's coming. Then in verse 3, your your leaders have fled together. Without the bow, they were captured. Essentially, he's saying they they were captured without even putting up a fight. And this is exactly what happened. Do you remember there was a breach made in the city? uh, Zechariah, no, it's not Zechariah. King Zedekiah? Zedekiah? Yeah, Zedekiah. Zedekiah and the leaders fled out of Jerusalem, and they were immediately captured, okay? And then the city was, the city fell. That's what Isaiah is seeing, okay? So on the one hand, in front of his eyes, Isaiah is seeing the city reveling. They, they're um, drinking, they're partying, and yet Isaiah sees the terrible, what, what will be a devastating conclusion to Jerusalem, and he cannot understand, why aren't you guys waking up? Why aren't you being sober-minded? And look at Isaiah's response in verse 4. This is Isaiah's unrestrained sorrow. Therefore, I said, look away from me. This is Isaiah speaking. He sees this vision, and then he just, he just interjects this sorrow. He says, look away from me. Let me weep bitter tears. Do not labor to comfort me concerning the destruction of the daughter of my people. So he just sees a taste of what's going to happen to Jerusalem, and he cannot bear it. He just begins weeping, and, and yet the people don't even see it. He's responding the way that God wants the people to respond. He's the only one who has vision, right? The rest of Jerusalem, can't uh, is blind to what's about to happen. So verse 5 through 8, Isaiah continues this judgment of the fall of Jerusalem, Isaiah says, For the Lord God of hosts has a day of tumult and trampling and confusion in the valley of vision, a battering down of walls and a shouting to the mountains. And Elam bore the quiver with chariots and horsemen, and Ker uncovered the shield. Your choicest valleys were full of chariots, and the horsemen took their stand at the gates. He, God, has taken away the covering of Judah. Notice the certainty of it again. These are all past tense verbs, though it has not happened yet. The Lord of hosts has a day. This is the sovereignty of God. He has a day. It shall come to pass. There's no avoiding it. He has a day. It's a day of tumult and trampling, confusion in the valley of vision, battering down of walls, shouting to the mountains, Just a note here, Elam and Kerr, these were a couple nations. We don't know a lot about them, but they were involved with Babylon in the taking of Jerusalem. So even before it happens, Isaiah is saying, look, these two nations are going to come, and your entire, the mountains and all of the valleys are going to be full of soldiers and chariots. And the worst part is verse 8, the protection that Jerusalem has had in the past is now gone. God says that, Isaiah says that God has taken away the covering of Judah, the protection that he has given to, Jeru- to Jerusalem up to that point. If you look at verse 8, uh, the people try to prepare against this uh, judgment, and yet they are preparing the wrong way. If you look at verses 8 through 11, this is the people prepare in the flesh, but they have no faith. Look at verses 8, the middle of verse 8 here. In that day, so this is the day of judgment. In that day, you looked to the weapons of the house of the forest, and you saw that the breaches of the city of David were many. You collected the waters of the lower pool And you counted the houses of Jerusalem, and you broke down the houses to fortify the wall. You made a reservoir between the two walls for the water of the old pool, but what did they not do? You did not look to him who did it or see him who planned it long ago. Okay, so the Lord removed their protection, and what was their first instinct when they were vulnerable? Okay? Okay, we need to fortify the walls. We need to make sure our water supply is is in good condition. We need to make sure we have enough shields and swords because this this fight is coming. We need to be prepared. Not bad things, but it should not have been their first resort. Okay, And in fact, what they did not even do at all was look to the Lord who had planned it. These are harsh words of condemnation. And revealing words that they did not even look to him who did it or see him who planned it long ago. Please note again the sovereignty of God here. Okay, Even though Babylon was the one who took the nation of, of Jerusalem, God right here is saying that God is the one who did it through a secondary means, of course. But God is ultimately the one who brought this judgment and discipline Upon Jerusalem, and not even that, but he planned it from long ago. Uh, this is this was not a new thing. When Isaiah wrote these words, it was still it would still be another hundred years before the event happened, and even long before that, God had planned this day of judgment for Jerusalem. And prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet came and told the people to repent, repent, repent. It's coming. And yet they did not because they could not see, right? Isaiah saw it coming. Isaiah saw it coming. The people could not see. They were not the valley of vision. They were the valley of blindness. Uh, Let me read you this quote from from a commentator. He says, The circumstances of the Lord's people are not chance but design. And their resource is not to change their circumstances or to question them, but to throw themselves in faith upon the doer, the potter himself. God has designed this, we'll see in just a couple of verses, God designed this judgment to bring about repentance in his people. But they did not see, they did not repent. Let's look at that verse now. This is verses 12. This is God's call for repentance. In that day, the Lord God of hosts, he called for weeping and mourning, for baldness and wearing sackcloth. And what was their response? Look at verse 3. They responded by ignoring and indulging. Okay, verse 13. So he called for weeping and mourning, and behold, this is how they responded, joy and gladness. Killing oxen, slaughtering sheep, eating flesh, drinking wine. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. This was the wrong reaction. This was the wrong reaction. God called for repentance, He called for mourning, and they responded with more revelry. They did not even see, and they couldn't see. They were blinded. God had blinded them to see what was happening, what was coming. Potentially, why are, well, why are they celebrating? Well, potentially they were celebrating their great engineering feat that they had just accomplished. They had just finished fortifying the city. They had built these new reservoirs. They had accumulated shields and swords. And so they said, all right, let's, let's party now. There's no way that we can be destroyed. We've got, these, uh, we've got these protections now. Let's kill the fattened calf and celebrate our engineering accomplishments. And yet... What God wanted them to do was respond in repentance, weeping and sackcloth and mourning. This was not what God wanted them, not how God wanted them to respond. So notice, then God's the Lord's chilling condemnation. These are the last verses we'll look at here in chapter 22. So that people respond this way, then verse 14 the Lord of hosts has revealed himself in my ears. Surely this iniquity will not be atoned for you until you die, says the Lord God of hosts. This is chilling, is it not? This is, um, commentators have referred to this as the un- like the unforgivable sin in the New Testament. Essentially, God has said here, that's it. There's no, there's no return. There's no uh, forgiveness for this sin. The unforgivable sin is unrepentance, right? There's no sin too great that cannot be repented of. And God cannot forgive except the sin of unrepentance. Un- and that's exactly what these people in Jerusalem are exhibiting. An unrepentant, flippant attitude towards sin. God has told them you're going to be destroyed. And they respond by saying, it's all right. We've got walls, weapons, water... Uh, we're okay. We can do this ourselves. God has said this iniquity will not be atoned for you until you die. Chilling words of condemnation. Let me remind you of Isaiah chapter 6. Do you remember that? When, God, when Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up, and his response was, Woe is me, right? Right? And then what did God do? He brought a coal to Isaiah's lips and said, this iniquity is now atoned for. In Isaiah's case, God atoned for his iniquity. In these people's case, their iniquity was not atoned. And the difference is repentance, right? If these people had re- responded in weeping and mourning and despair, God would have forgiven them if they had trusted in uh, a substitute for them, God would have forgiven them. And we know that from Joel. You may want to write this down. I think I may have it in your notes at the end. But Joel chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Joel two twelve and 13. I'm just going to go ahead and read it because it's um, it's instructive here. Joel 2, 12 and 14. And the, the context is the same, a day the day of judgment. This is what this is what Joel says. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved, right? All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, this is the judgment of Jerusalem. And this is just, as I said, this was a historical judgment, just a picture of a greater judgment that would be coming. And this is representative of all these chapters. As I mentioned, every chapter is a different nation. And judgment would be coming to each of them in their own historical way. But if you would turn to, ver- to chapter twenty-four, I want you to see this is this is known as Isaiah's little apocalypse. Have you ever heard that term before? This is not a very well-known passage of Isaiah, but it's referred to as Isaiah's little apocalypse. All of these chapters, these preceding chapters, talking about individual judgments on nations, are growing in a crescendo to chapter twenty-four which is judgment over the whole earth. So here in chapter 24, there's really no mention of individual nations or people groups. There's no real historical context for chapter 24. This is a future prophecy of the day of the Lord. This is the final day, the day of all days when judgment will come upon the entire earth. And each of these chapter, these preceding chapters, have been leading and pointing to this final chapter in 24. So we have just enough time. I just want to walk through this. I want to point out things to you along the way. Again, we'll, I, 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 we'll, we'll end here with some application, but I want you to see the surety of the condemnation that will fall upon the whole world And yet, there's a glimmer of hope, even in this chapter. I want you to see it as we go through. So, chapter 24, Isaiah begins, Behold, the Lord will empty the earth and make it desolate. He will twist its surface, He will scatter its inhabitants. And it shall be as with the people, so with the priest, as with the slave, so with the master, as with the maid, so with her mistress, as with the buyer, so with the seller. As with the lender, so with the borrower, as with the creditor, so with the debtor. The earth shall be utterly empty and utterly plundered, for the Lord has spoken this word. From low to high, every, every person in, on the face of the earth, regardless of social status, regardless of employment, every person will be subject to this judgment which is coming. And not just the people, but the earth itself. I want you to notice, if, if you want to, you can just underline every time you see the word earth in this whole chapter. It is one after another after another. Isaiah is talking about not just the people, but the entire earth will be judged. The earth will be made desolate, verse 1. He, God will twist the surface. He will scatter the people. This is... View, showing us a ravaged earth and a scattered people. Look at verse four. The earth mourns and withers. The Lord, the word, sorry, the world languishes and withers. The highest people of the earth languish. The question is why, right? Why? Why is the earth? Why has it been completely plundered? Why have the people been scattered? The cause of the curse is in verse 5 and 6. The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants for they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse devours the earth, and its inhabitants suffer for their guilt. Therefore, the inhabitants of the earth are scorched, and few men are left. The cause of the curse, very simply, is sin. Sin, right? Isaiah is telling us here that people are dangerous to the earth, right? Not because of overpopulation, not because of carbon dioxide, not because of deforestation. It is because of sin. Sin is the root of the problem. If you look in verse 5, what specifically have these people, in fact, you and I, what specifically have we done? We have transgressed God's laws, we have violated his statutes, we have broken the everlasting covenant. Paul picks up this picture in verse eight, or sorry, chapter eight of Romans. If you remember, that the earth was subjected to futility because of sin; the curse spread to enti- to the entire created world because of the sin of men. I have a question for you. Um, if you look down in verse six, it should be interesting to us uh, <laughs> because the uh, commentators pointed out. It should be interesting to us that there are a few men left. Is that interesting to you? Who are these few men? Why are there few men left? I guess the greater question is why is there anyone left at all after this day of judgment where the people have been scattered and the earth has been made desolate? Do, Do you remember, maybe let me pause here for a second, is there another time previously in the Bible where we have seen this judgment over the entire world with a few men left. Is that the flood? Yeah, Noah. That's right. Why was Noah left? What was that? Yeah, that's right. What else was that? Yeah, that's right. Did Noah transgress God's laws? Did he break the everlasting covenant? Yeah. But why was he left? Because of God's grace. He found favor in the eyes of God because he had a righteousness by faith, right? (laughs) It's the same thing here. There are few men left not because they had um, really deep bomb shelters, right? This is not how we should prepare for the apocalypse, by building a bomb shelter to protect us. That was the foolishness of Jerusalem that we saw in chapter 22. They said, if I can just build a big enough wall and store up enough water, I'll be able to survive the judgment. There is no bomb shelter deep enough. There is no supply of food long enough to save you from this final day of judgment. But there are some who survived. We'll find out in a few verses how they survived. Let's keep going in in verse 7 to 12. What we see here is that the joy is banished in the wasted city. The joy is banished. Verse 7, The wine mourns, the vine languishes, all the merry-hearted sigh. The mirth of the tambourines is stilled, the noise of the jubilant has ceased, the mirth of the lyre is stilled. No more do they drink wine with singing, strong drink is bitter, to those who drink it. The wasted city is broken down. Every house is shut up so that none can enter. There is an outcry in the streets for lack of wine. All joy has grown dark. The gladness of the earth is banished. Desolation is left in the city. The gates are battered into ruins. Do you see why this... um, Chapter fits so well with chapter 22. Okay, in chapter 22, Jerusalem responded by merrymaking, right? By slaughtering the fattened calf, by drinking wine. They had no idea what was coming. But when the day of judgment comes, there will be no one taking pleasure in merrymaking. There will be no amount of wine will bring joy to the people living at that time. No more do they drink wine with singing. Strong drink is bitter to those who drink it. All joy has grown dark. This is a gloomy sight, is it not? This is a very, very dark day. And in fact, it makes me think of um, a picture of some of the destruction from World War II. I mean, specifically the, the two cities uh, like Hiroshima, Hiroshima. You've seen pictures just completely, just a complete wasteland, right? Just complete devastation. That's the picture I see here. But yet, Isaiah in chapter, in verse 13, does something very unexpected. One commentator says that Isaiah is the master of the unexpected note of hope. So the question is, how on earth is there any hope in this day of judgment? Well, Isaiah here gives us almost like a sunbeam coming through a very dark sky, a sunbeam on verse 13, and it's a little bit mysterious at first, so let, let let me help you walk through it. Verse 13, for thus it shall be in the midst of the earth among the nations as when an olive tree is beaten, as at the gleaning when the grape harvest is done. What is that? What does that mean we don't have olive trees here but apparently the way you harvest olives is by taking a stick and hitting it right (laughs) it's like up in South Dakota uh, when it snows snow falls on the trees you can take a stick and hit the tree and all the snow falls down right well the way they would harvest olives is they would hit the tree and the ripe olives would come down where they'd collect them but not all of the olives would fall there would be some left on the tree and that's what the word gleaning means, right? Do you understand gleaning is when the harvest comes through, they harvest the crop. Gleaning means that there are some crops left over and those were to be left for the widows and others who uh, didn't have means. They, they could come and, and glean the field, right? Think about uh, Ruth, the book of Ruth. This is an unexpected note of hope. In the midst of this judgment, there would be some who would not be destroyed. Well, let's keep reading because he keeps going. Verse 14. They, these are the olives left on the tree, they lift up their voices, they sing for joy. Over the majesty of the Lord they shout from the west. Therefore, verse 15, this is Isaiah speaking. "Therefore Therefore, in the east, give glory to the Lord. In the coastlands of the sea, give glory to the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. Verse 16. From the ends of the earth we hear songs of praise, of glory to the righteous one. This is unexpected, right? Can you imagine? The picture is something like a World War II city that's been devastated. And all of a sudden you start hearing singing. You start seeing people climb out of this rubble and they're singing singing. How on earth could someone be singing in the midst of such a gloomy situation, right? Well, what are they singing? What what do you see here? What are they singing about? Yeah, glory, praise. Why are they giving him glory? What do you think? Yeah, that's right. They were spared. Please note, this singing is from all around. Verse uh, 15, no, sorry, verse 14, he first hears it from the west. He starts hearing the shouting, the singing from the west. So therefore, uh, verse 15, Isaiah calls the people on the east to give him glory. This singing is, is all around. And they're singing songs of glory to the Lord. Verse 16, we hear songs of praise of glory to the righteous one. Who is that? (laughs) Who is that? Let me give you a hint. There's only one other time in Isaiah where this phrase is used, the righteous one. That's Isaiah 53, right? There is only one righteous one ever who has ever lived, Jesus Christ. That's what we know him as. (laughs) They didn't know his name yet. They knew him as the Messiah. They knew him as the righteous one. He is the one who would come and fulfill the righteousness that God's people could not get for themselves. There's a little bit of debate here about whether... Uh, the righteous people, whether this word, the righteous, is talking about the righteous one, or whether it's talking about the righteous people. And, uh, And really what we see in verse 53 is that the righteous one gives righteousness to his people. So it's a little bit of both, right? These people who are coming out of the rubble are themselves righteous, not because of their own righteousness, though, because of the righteous one. So that's verse 16, the first half. So even as quickly as this sunbeam breaks through, uh, just as quickly it disappears. And Isaiah continues, verse 16, I waste away, I waste away, woe is me, for the traitors have betrayed. With betrayal, the traitors have betrayed. So even this picture of redemption, a picture of a remnant people, isn't enough to comfort Isaiah He is still overwhelmed by the destruction that he's seeing. He continues just with uh, an interjection of grief. And and it just continues. I think I'll just read these last few verses really without much comment at all. But verse 17, Isaiah continues, "'Terror and the pit and the snare are upon you, O inhabitant of the earth. He who flees at the sound of terror shall fall into the pit.'" He who climbs out of the pit shall be caught in the snare. For the windows of heaven are opened, and the foundations of the earth tremble. The earth is utterly broken. The earth is split apart. The earth violently is violently shaken. The earth staggers like a drunken man. It sways like a hut. Its transgression lies heavy upon it. It falls, and it will not rise again. There's no repairing this earth. Verse 21 On that day, this is a day, on that day, the Lord will punish the host of heaven in heaven, and the kings of the earth on the earth. They will be gathered together as prisoners in a pit, they will be shut up in a prison, and then after many days they will be punished. Let me just end here with verse 23. Then the moon will be confounded and the sun ashamed, for the Lord of hosts reigns on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, and his glory will be before his elders. Amazing. Isaiah ends here on a note of the Lord reigning in Zion and in Jerusalem. He continues. We, we'll stop here. Uh, I just want you to end on the, I just want you to see the judgment. Next week, we'll talk about, uh, we'll talk about salvation. We'll talk about the righteous one next week. Uh, but today, Isaiah has given us just a picture, a glimmer of the hope that's available for those who repent, right? Who repent and trust in Christ, the righteous one, so what's the application of this? What what can we pull from these two chapters, twenty two and twenty four, other than gloom and doom for the future of the earth and the future of all people? Well, I just I, I thought of a few things that, that may be instructive for us. Um, the first one here is weep, don't rejoice at the judgment of your nation. Right? Do you see how did you see how Isaiah was responding to the judgment coming? On people, he knew that he was safe. He knew that he was secure. God had atoned for his sin back in verse in chapter six. He would not be among these people who would be lost forever. And yet Isaiah didn't respond with um, gloating, as in uh, "Oh, this nation! Uh, I just can't wait for this nation to be judged." No, he responds with weeping. He and and we see Paul the same way. He says. I wish I was accursed uh, because my people, for the sake of my people, right? In Romans chapter 9. So the first application is we should respond the same way Isaiah responded, grief and weeping for those whose this is their fate. But the second application is for you to put your trust, your hope, in the work of Christ and not your hands. We see that a couple times, uh, most notably in chapter 22 when the people tried to fortify the city of Jerusalem all for naught, right? It's the same way. It's, the, it's, the, it's the, uh, the, the difference between a salvation by works and a salvation by grace through faith, right? Okay, so our only hope is not in a big bomb shelter, a food supply. Our only hope is in the righteousness that comes through Christ, The third application is to repent when disciplined. This is what God calls for. This is what God called for when he brought judgment on Jerusalem. He called for repentance. He called for weeping, and yet their people responded in the wrong way. So too, in your and my life, God brings discipline, but it's for our good, and and our life should be a pattern of continual repentance, right? Right? The only unforgivable sin is an unrepentant sin, a hardened attitude towards sin. And finally, final application is for you to worship in the brilliant righteous one who saved you from the wrath to come. This is why these people were singing. They were singing praises to the righteous one who saved them. The more we understand the darkness of what you and I have been saved from, the more we should be thankful for what god has saved us from that's right because there's nothing we could have done to there's there's nothing we could have done to to prevent ourselves from being destroyed and god is the only one who could have opened our eyes uh, to see the destruction coming and to see our own sinfulness right he provides the cure he, provide, he provides the atonement for us through christ amen well uh, that, was, that was judgment in the book of Isaiah. I hope you come back next week to, to, uh, to where we, we will study the salvation via the servant. I think we're going to spend the whole time in Isaiah 53. And it's going to be wonderful to see the faithful servant of the Lord who is Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that You have revealed this to us. We thank You that You have opened our eyes to see our own sin. We thank You that You have sent a Savior, the righteous one, the righteous branch, the faithful servant who fulfilled all righteousness, who obeyed every place we could not obey. And uh, Father, You give us His righteousness when we repent and believe. Father, I pray that You would... um, Change us this morning that we would not walk away the same way that we came in this morning, but we would remember and be changed by what you have saved us from, reading the fate of what, what we would have been uh, had it not been for you, for the work of Christ. Father, we thank you that we can come here this morning. I pray for Randy this morning. I pray that you would uh, open our ears again as Randy preaches, and we hear you speak to us again from the book of Mark.